You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 113 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, episode 112, Daniel Butler of DBA Lawyers in Melbourne walked you through the ins and outs of SMSF succession. One important part of that is to consider a binding death benefit nomination. And so I asked Daniel to please tell you more about BDBN's binding death benefit nominations. And he kindly said yes. Here's Daniel. Binding nominations are dangerous in terms of that if you get them wrong, they're not worth the paper they were written on. Look, I would agree with that. A binding nomination to be binding, you need a very sound deed. Herein lies a lot of the problem. A lot of advisors go to the web or they go to these other suppliers that are not even legally qualified and they procure a deed. And a lot of these services these days say, come to the web, it's very easy, you don't need a lawyer, just do it yourself. Putting all the information, work out who the parties to that deed are and just do it yourself. Now, those advisors are taking on all the risks. They are playing the lawyer. And if things go pear-shaped, they're responsible. In fact, technically, they have breached the legal practice legislation in each jurisdiction. They could be sentenced to jail if they were actually convicted for that. So it's a very serious thing to go in and do a deed and then be responsible for all of that. And look at that judgment of Cantor and Booth. And Cantor and Booth was the accountant who appeared to have done the BDBN and had messed it up in Mullins and Mullins. And again, it appears the accountant or financial planner did the BDBN and it was messed up. Now, these firms are on the firing line of any litigation that follows so that if they want to do the legal work, if they want to blow their professional indemnity insurance, if they want to be responsible under the Legal Profession Practice Act, and indeed, advisors really have to consider, should they be doing a BDBN for a client? Because really, it gets down to it. It's an innocuous document, but it's a very strategic and very important document for a client. Because if it doesn't work, you only get one shot of it, and that's when you're alive. Hmm. I thought it was a very important point, which I hadn't realised until you said it, that you can't really look at the binding nomination alone, isolated, you always need to look at how it links to the trust deed. Well, that's right. And what we say is you don't start with you need a binding nomination. You start with the holistic story. The holistic story is you need your estate planning looked at and you need to consider your estate planning and how that dovetails with, say, your super planning. So with doing a BDBN, it's only one little thing. And what we would like to do is start with your whole estate plan to work out, well, look, have you got a will? Do you need a testament to trust? Have you got the powers of attorney? Have you got an auto-reversionary pension or do you need one? Have you got a BDBN or do you need one? So we don't just go through and do it. We start questioning the very existence or the need of these documents and then we design them to meet those specific needs of the client. And as mentioned, if you do a BDBN or a binding nomination more where you can actually do things that could mess up the rest because there are cases that we see where things are inconsistent with each other that give rise to legal disputes. Like if you have an auto-reversionary to say to a surviving spouse but your BDBN is to your estate, 
or your legal personal representative. How do you resolve that conflict? So therefore, that could be a lawyer's picnic. That could be a big dispute where there's hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on lawyers to resolve that basic inconsistency. Is there a lot of legislation about BBBNs or is it more case law that gives us the framework? Well, Heidi, there is legislation here. We go to the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act, 1993, and there it basically is saying, Section 59, you cannot tell a trustee how to do its business because a trustee, you cannot fetter its discretion. One exception is if it is a BDBN, and if it is a BDBN and it's for a large fund, it must be in compliance with Reg 6.17a of the CIS regs. So in 6.17a goes through a number of points that must be satisfied for the BDBN to be binding. Now it's quite interesting because if we go to one of the largest funds in the country, in fact it's the second most largest fund in the country, it's the REST fund or the decision is called the Retail Employees Superannuation Proprietary Limited versus Payne, being P-A-I-N, 2016 in square brackets, SASC, South Australian Supreme Court, 121. It's a very important judgment, this judgment. In fact, it's a very good read. I'd recommend all of your listeners read this judgment. Why? It's a very good judge. He's Justice Blue, and he's gone to a lot of trouble. In fact, the judgment is 198 pages in length. So it's a very good read. But it gets really exciting just around page 100. So when we reach 100, we're getting very exciting because we're starting to talk about BDBNs. But the real critical paragraph here is in paragraph 512. And 512, where Justice Blue concludes in respect of the CIS BDBN provisions, particularly Reg 6.17a, gives rise to ambiguities, uncertainties, and potentially unintended consequences. It is highly desirable that those provisions be reviewed by the Commonwealth and recast. Thus, if you have a deed, and if you rely on the CIS provisions, as many SMSF deeds do, indeed, many large funds would also rely on the CIS provisions, we have a very eminent judge saying, you're skating on thin ice. This legislation is so inconsistent, ambiguous, it probably won't stack up. I would not want any of my clients having a BDBN which is based on one of those deeds which is deficient. But many are. Herein lies the point. Our firm takes the view that BDBNs are not valid unless they're proven to our satisfaction. So we paid to challenge many BDBNs. It's part of our day-to-day -day business. So clients come and say, look, I don't like this BDBN. How do we take a shot at it? One recent example is we did a seven-page letter of advice, point after point, pointing out all of the weaknesses in this BDBN so we could take a big shot in the sales of this BDBN. And then you have all these advisors going to the web, getting poor quality deeds because they're cheap. Like, I can get a cheap deed. I can get my teeth done very cheaply. I don't go to a dentist. I go to a backyard mechanic. He just uses a pair of pliers. My teeth, yes, I've got my teeth removed, but, geez, I suffer a lot of pain. That's the sort of analogy that I'd like to give a lot of these advisors. They get a cheap deed, and they think they've got it done, and they put more money in their back pocket, but they've breached the law. They expose themselves to professional indemnity claims, and they've got all these disasters that may follow. 
the money going pear-shaped and families broken apart. Retail employees versus pain, what was the point of contention? Uh, the point of contention was it was one of the largest funds in the country. It had, over many years, done about 30 changes to its deed. A number of those changes may have been somewhat questionable as to whether it was validly varied. So it wanted to amass all of these potential problems, taken into court and get declarations to say the deed, the latest deed, is A-OK. And part of that had to look at provisions relating to the BDBN. And as I mentioned, the judge said there's ambiguities, uncertainties and potentially unintended consequences with the CIS legislation dealing with BDBNs. You wouldn't want to really rely on it. So who is paying in this story? That would be a nominal member who is represented by the membership base. And I believe APRA also may have been invited to make submissions in that judgment so that the members are represented and also regulatory authorities are also represented in that judgment. As I said, it's a 198-page judgment. So it goes through change after change. It's very detailed analysis. So Payne is a nominal member, so they basically just acted as if the member was disputing the deed so that they would get a judgment. Well, this is one of the biggest funds in the land. This might have two million members. So, so what they I basically... think they've got is a nominal member to say, oh, you're representing the members against the trustee, and we'll use this as a representative legal action to get the declarations such that we wouldn't want to make the two million plus members, because there's $7 billion in this fund, as representatives to a court judgment. But so was there a real point of dispute or did they just want to have clarity about the validity of their trust deed Look, or their BDBNs? It's open to a trustee to go to court to get a declaration. And the declaration is to say, look, this happened in another judgment where the second spouse was looking at her position and saying, look, I think I could pay this money to myself, but I'll go to court to make sure I'm doing it in accordance with the deed. So in this South Australian decision she went to court to get declarations. So the idea of getting declarations is not really a dispute as such, but it's just getting directions from the court to get directions to say, once you act on directions from the court, you as a trustee are indemnified because you've done it under the directions of the court. I see. So this was about getting a direction of the court and hence being protected. Correct. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, the nominal plaintiff, in effect, was just put there just to represent the members. Look, the judgment actually doesn't talk about that, Heidi, so it's just my presumption about how it is, because you're not told about that. It's just basically, it's a long judgment about this and that. Perry versus Nicholson. Well, here's an interesting judgment, because... There's two judgments that involve self-managed funds in recent times, and Perry and Nicholson is a 2017 Queensland Supreme Court judgment where the deceased daughter ceased to challenge the validity of her father's binding nomination, which directed his benefits to be paid to his de facto partner, Jennifer Nicholson. Now, his binding nomination was made in times that was probably made quite near his death. And he wasn't always lucid. So it was sort of considered that there might have been some influence by the second spouse for him to make the binding nomination in her favour. So in this case, and again, reading between the lines, it would appear that the accountant had done a change of trustee from a web-based supplier, which is not a law firm supplier. 
So it looks like the accountant did all the handiwork of this change of trustee. And in this case, the daughter says, look, if I can upset that change of trustee, I've got some chance of getting some money. If I cannot upset that change of trustee, all the money goes to the second spouse. And again, the accounting firm appears to have been the drafter of this. The deed was one of those deeds from an off-web-based supplier. Fortunately, because the deed didn't comply with the strictness of the law, but fortunately or unfortunately, depending on which side of the fence you look at it, the deed was held to be successful to do a change of trustee. So the second spouse took the money here. So the second spouse won, even though the deed was done not properly, it was done by an accounting firm, was not a law firm, that accounting firm would have been exposed to litigation for all the costs that the daughter may have gone through in trouble, but they did the deed from an off-the-shelf web-based supplier. So it's one of those cases which shows you about might seem like a simple exercise to get a change of trustee done, but they wear all the risk. In this recent decision of Narramon, in Narramon, a deed was held invalid because they used the wrong reference to where the person signed. They said authorised representative. They didn't say as a director. And that alone was critical to the deed failing. I didn't realise that in Namaran the deed had failed, but maybe it was a different case. Well, in Namaran, is it re-Namaran? Yes. In re-Namaran, re-Namaran, there's a 2004 deed, then there's a 2007 deed, and then there's a 2017 deed. The 2007 deed was executed as the director executed it and had the wording authorised representative. It did not have director. And that's all the judgment tells us, that that was fatal to that 2007 deed being knocked out. Fortunately, the 2014 deed was still valid. It was still valid because the 2014 deed was within the variation power of the 2004 deed. So as an intermediate deed, the 2007 deed was knocked out. And we have other examples of getting down to real tic-tacs where the member had signed, but while they had signed, they didn't make mention to their title, which was founder. So not making mention to the title founder was fatal to a change of trustee in Moss and Haynes Super, Victorian Supreme Court judgments. And this is why we don't encourage advisors themselves to go to the web and do this handiwork, whereas these websites say, oh, come to us, you don't need lawyers, they only complicate things, it's simple, it's easy, and it's cheap. As I said, I can get my teeth done very cheaply at a backyard mechanic. Protecting who takes control, because what we have seen in the past uh, with a lot of cases, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If you are left standing with 80% plus of funds, being self-managed funds, where you're going to have the surviving spouse, the surviving spouse is left standing. There's one case, it's Worcester and Morris, and it's a Victorian Supreme Court judgment in 2013. And you actually represented the, the daughters in that case, didn't you? Well, our firm did have a consulting role in that, so what I can say is what is on the public record. But there was another law firm that handled the litigation, but we assisted the two daughters. But that was a long, drawn-out case, and in that case, there was determined via a special referee, because in, in the end they went to mediation, and the special referee determined that the BDBN was valid. So there was a valid BDBN, 
and the deceased account was more than $924,000. So the dispute was all about $924,000 with the valid BDBN. And because of what had transgressed, Mrs. Morris had reduced his balance quite considerably due to professional fees. Like in one year alone, there were around 350000 of legal fees. And I think to remember that she charged them entirely to the deceased account, not to her own account. Well, that's right. And what happened there, she was held to have a severe conflict and her severe conflict then rendered her... Because she should have been acting for the members, not just for self-interest. And as a trustee... She was held in contravention of her fiduciary role. Therefore, she was accountable and therefore the costs were not just coming out of his account. So because of her conflict, the award of costs were against her in that regard and the BDBN was held to be valid. So there's a binding BDBN, but takeaway really is a BDBN is not going to be the answer. It's really control. So we really focus on this aspect of control. Yes, because I think in the end, in that case, most of the money was gone. So in the end, the daughters won, but the trustee had paid out most of the cash, so the money was gone. And I don't think the daughters succeeded in getting all of it back. Well, this is a shame with a lot of these cases because people do documents like a BDBN, and they do it on the faith that it's going to work. But you come to me and most of the documents that I see just fail. They fail with real basics. They have wording in there that says words to the effect, this BDBN is only binding if it's to the trustee's satisfaction. And the second spouse says, I don't like that. Hmm. So you're in for a fight. Hmm. And these fights take years. These fights take hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hmm. Therefore, people are sort of checking out and saying, here's my BDBN and I'm out of this world. And it's all left to a big punch-up out there where their money could be going pear-shaped and chewed up by endless litigation. Mm. And at the end, it's all gone anyway. Yep, and it's all gone. And rips families apart too. Like, if people were more considerate and advisors were more careful with this planning, we wouldn't have so many casualties out there. There's a recent case of Cantor and Booth. And in Cantor and Booth, it would appear the accountant had prepared the BDBN. And uh, the client came in and said, look, I want to come in and execute my BDBN. And he came in and quickly the BDBN was executed. He was going overseas, so he left overseas. He died. and Went was, overseas? We're not really told all of the details in these <laughs> cases, but he died. It was yeah. a, an assessment. The case was about whether or not the BDBN had been given to the trustee. Now, what we do know, the accountant had been the witness, plus a admin person in the accounting office had been the witness to this BDBN. After his death, his BDBN was found on his personal file. The accounting firm was also the trustee for the corporate trustee. The accounting firm was also the registered office of the corporate trustee. So the corporate trustee and he were clients of the accounting firm. So there was a, a judgment or a claim taken to see whether or not the BDBN, which was found on his personal file, had been given to the trustee. This was the real hinge to it. Whether someone got the money or someone else got the money, because his brother was challenging this, that the money could have gone to a second spouse. So the question really was, in that incident, 
was the BDBN given? Had it been given, it was valid. If it hadn't been given, it was not valid. Now, the court came to the view, because there's a long-held tradition under corporate law, particularly if we go to the Corporations Act, Section 109X provides that to serve a document on a company, you don't need to do much more than actually leave it at the registered office or send it to the registered office. Ah. And the registered office was the accountant's office. Yes, but when the client came into the accountant's in a hurry, let's do my um, BDBN, I'm off overseas, I'm in a hurry, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, I don't want to pay for your time, and then he went off and then died... The accountant hadn't been given specific instructions to say, by the way, accountant, put a copy of that on the corporate register or put a copy of that on the company file as well. There's no instructions like that. So the court had to go through in some detail to work out whether or not this BDBN had been given. And what did they decide? Well, they decided it had been given because of the Mm. more flexible way of giving a document to a company where Mm. you leave it at its registered office. Mm. And so So, that decision favoured whom? Did it favour the second wife? It's always nice to hear in the end who won. Because his brother was challenging it. I see. So it was the brother brother against the second spouse? So who won? Second spouse won. If it hadn't have gone to the second spouse, then it would have ended up more than likely in this state. And hence would have benefited the brother or whoever was... The family members under the estate, yes. What's an EPOA? An EPOA is your enduring power of attorney. Oh, I see. Okay. Can an attorney under an enduring power of attorney make a binding nomination? It's a very good question. We have a case on point. This is the Ray Naramon. In Ray Naramon Proprietary Limited, 2018, square brackets, Queensland Supreme Court 185, this judgment examines whether or not an attorney can make or effectively break a BDBN. And it's not so simple. But it does confirm that a binding nomination is not a testamentary instrument. To be a testamentary instrument, it has to be part of your assets or part of your estate. So when you die, your last will and testament deals with your estate being your testamentary assets. And since super is really housed, so as to speak, in a trust, it is not part of your assets. It's governed by the trust deed. For instance, we mentioned before that the trustee decides who gets the death benefit unless there's a binding nomination in place. In this case, the attorney had extended the duration of a binding nomination. In this case, we were looking at the Queensland situation of under their powers of attorney legislation. And in this case, the attorneys had extended the binding nomination for a period of time. And it extended it because of the three-year rule we talked about before under the CIS regulation 6.17a. Due to the fact that it was merely extending the duration of this binding nomination, it was held to be a valid exercise of the attorney's power. However, if you had to have any change to that binding nomination, you would need to have express authorization in your EPOA or your power of attorney expressly allowing a conflict situation to arise because often the attorney may benefit from their action. And therefore, the attorney would need to be expressly authorised in the power of attorney to say, look, if you want to provide your spouse with the ability to vary your binding nomination, then you can say, look, 
I'm appointing my spouse as my attorney and my spouse can make all decisions regarding myself, including ones regarding superannuation. And I'm quite happy, for instance, for my spouse to benefit from my super or my other assets. So you need to go to that sort of extent in more legalistic terms in order to ensure that they could do things such as your binding nomination. You may even want to point out that they can do your binding nomination. Or you may say, look, they can renew your binding nomination, but they cannot change your binding nomination. Our discussion today is really about estate and succession planning. So as mentioned, it's a holistic exercise with much more like advisors particularly to encourage their clients to look at it a holistic exercise. The holistic exercise to look at everything, make sure they're properly structured, make sure they've got the corporate trustee, preferably they've got successor directors in place, preferably they've got a deed that does cut the mustard here, that they have the ability to do a valid binding nomination. I would really strongly recommend they don't try to do the binding nomination themselves, but let that work go to the estate planning lawyer. Get the estate planning lawyer to sign off on the binding nomination. Sure, as an advisor who's not legally qualified, give advice to your client on things that you're competent and qualified and covered under your professional indemnity insurance to do. But don't put your neck out because these are complex matters even matters such as change of trustee or doing that power of attorney, while it can be done cheaper over the web, I would really encourage advisors to do it properly in conjunction with a qualified lawyer that they get on well with who's competent in that area. And one of the things that we do here, as I mentioned, we do a lot of SMSF succession. So we supply a lot of documentation. And that goes out to a lot of lawyers, a lot of advisors. We believe we're providing the best documents available to do proper SMSF succession. And we supply this to advisors all around Australia. So unless you really are aware of all these issues, there's a lot of traps for young players. Welcome back. So binding death benefit nominations need to be part of a holistic approach around estate planning and SMSF succession. In the next episode, episode 114, Michael McCarthy of Texan Super Australia will talk about deceased estates. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support.